Well, thank you very much, everyone, for your patience. Um, I'm Ross Cranston. Um, welcome to the fifth in this series uh, of interviewing leading figures in the law here at the LSE for the purposes of the Legal Biography Project. Uh, we started with our patron, the late Lord Bingham, uh, then Lord Mackay, the former Lord Chancellor, uh, came along, then Lord Hoffman, and earlier this year we had uh, Baroness Hale. Um, now, tonight's guest, uh, as you all know, is the Right Honourable Kenneth Clark, QCMP, the Lord Chancellor. And given the time, I'll get yeah, straight I, to the quick. I just apologise for the delay. The delay's been caused by uh, all the roads being sealed off round Westminster, so I've been sitting in the car for some time. Uh, trying to find some route around to get across here because there's a demonstration and the police have sealed off Parliament Square and half the surrounding areas. And the trouble with London is traffic jams spread around the surrounding area when they start. So at one point I was happily settled down in the stationary car, uh, blissfully unaware of when I might arrive. Thank you all for waiting. <laughs> well, Ken, you've had, a, you've had a remarkable political career, but I'd like to ask you some questions about your, your legal career. And... Can I start with the near present, namely your appointment, coming back to the law and being appointed as Lord Chancellor? Um, uh, how did you feel about that, uh, uh, given the Prime Minister had to find a, a berth for... Do you need it? No. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to lose it. I don't know what you picked it up for. Oh, yes, he's staying there. Yes, he's to take it away. Yeah, yeah, sure. I wonder where on earth that come from. I didn't think I picked it up. Very good. <laughs> it's, it's a daily, it's the folder which has my briefing for the day's events. This is the last of the day's events. I don't need to be told where to go next. So I, <laughs> it shows how it's thought that no government minister can possibly get out uh, without being totally instructed about where to go and what to do next. Um, my appointment, yes, well, it, I was very pleased because it took me back uh, to my origins as a lawyer. Um, all the Conservatives in the present coalition government, or the vast majority of them, are kind of displaced persons. Uh, because we spent our time in opposition shadowing posts which most of us expected we would hold. I, I was firstly persuaded to come back on the front bench, then I was, uh, and I came back as shadow business secretary. And I rather assumed that I would be business secretary, that was the whole point. I was uh, spending a lot of time uh, involved as the kind of junior economic department. I've been in the DTI in the past. And I, I was shadowing my Lord Mandelson's ramshackle empire, which got bigger and bigger as I shadowed it. Uh, and I expected to go there. And then we failed to win the election. Uh, so I was one of the strongest advocates of the coalition. It seemed to be the disaster which I thought a hung parliament would be in the middle of its financial crisis. You know, it had got to be able to deal with it somehow. I didn't think British politicians would form a working coalition. I didn't think we could, contrary to our tribal traditions. But I was very glad we formed a coalition. But once you form a coalition, you've got to accommodate about 20 or 30 ministers from the other party. And uh, it was pretty obvious that Vince Cable should go in as business secretary, uh, which was made eminent sense that as, as alongside uh, George. And so when I got some to Downing Street, I hadn't the first idea uh, what David Cameron was going to do with me. It was all very interesting, but I uh, thought he might start 
gently trying to sound me out to see if I wanted to be governor of Bermuda or something of that kind. <laughs> uh, 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 and um, so when he, I think he was rather nervous. Uh, and so when he offered me uh, being Lord Chancellor Secretary for Justice, uh, I was very pleased. I thought it was excellent and, uh, you know, it's sort of uh, rather fun going back to being a lawyer again. Not too distant because I had been Home Secretary. And, and so I was very delighted and very pleased, went back, and there had been no trouble. Everybody else got knocked down. The Shadow Lord Chancellor is now the Attorney General. The Shadow Attorney General's now the Solicitor General. The mm. Shadow Solicitor General is now Parliamentary Under Secretary of State at the Department of Justice. Uh, and uh, so I was knocked sideways and bong, 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 all the others went down. Uh, but um, a cascade. I'm enjoying it. It's fun. <laughs> no, it's fine. And, uh, uh, as Vince has had a difficult day today, uh, probably more difficult to him than it would have been for me, but uh, Vince has had a difficult time today. Perhaps I'm better off where I am. I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah. Let's come back to that later on. There may be questions from the mm. audience. Can I take you right back to the, the beginning, as it were? You're born in Nottinghamshire. Um, you're brought up uh, outside uh, Nottingham. Uh, you, your, your father uh, was a, an engineer... Uh, electrician, I think, at one stage, and then ran a. Um, that's all. That's all faintly uh, correct. Yeah, they, 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 they. <laughs> I haven't finished. <laughs> <laughs> he then uh, he then runs a jeweller's shop and watch repairing business. But I, I really want to ask about his influence on you. I mean, was he a big influence on your your life? He was really. Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, I got very well with my father. My father's a very nice guy, um, and uh, I, I came from. It's a Nottingham family, but my parents had moved out. They lived in a Derbyshire village near the Nottinghamshire border when I was born. I was born in Nottingham because there's a, a women's hospital there where I got born uh, for some reason. But they, uh, we lived in a place called Langley Mill in Derbyshire, and and my 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 father was the sort of colliery electrician. It was a pit village. Uh, and uh, he, he moonlighted running the local cinema and at the end of the war he set up as a shopkeeper um, and uh, then we moved back so he, he established himself as a shopkeeper and watchmaker and jeweller and it, when I was 10 uh, we moved back into Nottingham where I lived in North Nottingham after that so that's, that's the geography of my life um, my father, yeah, he was an extremely laid back guy. he didn't have an enemy in the world uh, and he was just extremely popular, as far as I could see, and I liked him a lot. And I think what I inherited from him mainly uh, was, was his extremely laid-back temperament. He, he, was, he obviously was hard-working, and he moonlighted, saved hours money, started his shop, worked very hard at his shop, loved nothing more than seeing late in the evening and repairing his watches. But the, um, he, he was just extremely sunny, untroubled temperament, uh, I liked him, admired him, and whenever I mentioned him, there aren't many people left who remember him now, whenever I mentioned him, they liked him. But he, he wasn't political, he'd had a quite different sort of uh, life to the one I, I have since followed. But yeah, he was yeah. a great guy. But you developed your interest in politics very early. Uh, can, can you tell us something about that? I don't know how or why I developed an interest in politics. I just did start taking an interest in it. Nobody in my family was involved in politics, apart from my maternal grandfather, who'd been a member of the Communist Party. He also really was a member of the Communist Party, but the very soft end of the Communist Party, he thought Uncle Joe was leading a kind of utopian-type uh, society out in Russia. He, before the war, he'd been a Labour Party activist and a union activist. He worked at the Rally Cycle Company. And... Um, 
he, he, he was a follower of George Lansbury, the pacifist leader of the Labour Party. When the Labour Party threw George Lansbury out, my grandfather kind of gave up the Labour Party and decided he was now a communist. But he was, as I said, quite the softest centred communist I ever knew. But um, that had no influence on me at all. By the way, he, as I got older, the more I was obviously getting political, the more he disapproved of my little activities. That was uh, about my main influence my grandfather. Uh, the, the, I think the reason I started taking interest when I started reading of all things, the Daily Mail. It was my main reading matter in the house, and it came in every day. And I wasn't some sort of cutely little nerd, I don't think. I, I, I actually read it for fluke and the football and all the sensible things, but I then would get down to reading the political events. And I started following the Attlee government and political events and got very interested. I would say I can't imagine I remotely understood what on earth I was reading about, really, at the age of seven. I kept a strap, scrapbook, I think, of the 1950 election. Uh, and uh, just kind of followed it. By the time I got to school, I knew I was very interested in politics. And by the time I left school, I knew I was going to be a politician. I hadn't yet decided which political party would have the privilege of having me amongst his members. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I was uh, going to be a politician. Just quickly, going over your school life, I mean, you did exceptionally well. You won a scholarship to Nottingham High School. You did very well in your A-levels, three A-levels, which is, of course, a real achievement in those days. Um, you then uh, applied to Cambridge, but you applied to read history. And over the summer, you suddenly decide you want to do law. Now, can you tell us about yeah. the law, whether you'd had an interest earlier, whether you'd been into the courts while still at school? Well, it was all rather coming. I mean, I used to say, I, I, I went to Nottingham. I was an 11-plus boy at Nottingham High School, which is uh, long since extinct... Uh, uh, passage uh, for people to get to an independent day school, which it is, uh, by the 11 plus. The city and the county paid for people to get there. And I went through Nottingham High School, did all right there. And uh, as you say, it's a very good academic school. Uh, I went to see History Boys, the play recently, which, apart from the fact the great history master who taught me was straight and not gay and wouldn't know any of those complications. Uh, was actually a complete replica of my life in the sixth form. Uh, my friends and I were all like that, and it was an academic sweatshop in those days, and the sole aim was to get you into Cambridge or Oxford. That was Oxbridge entrance was the uh, complete object uh, of the sixth form, and uh, the atmosphere of teaching was not too dissimilar either from the history boys. Uh, but the, 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 anyway, from there... I went off to Cambridge, and as you say, I got into my history. I was a historian at school. I was in the History 6, and history and English literature were meant to be my subjects. It killed off my interest in English literature for life. My interest in history has remained. Uh, and then I got very utilitarian. <clears throat> Between leaving school and going to university, uh, I, I thought of being a lawyer, and I, I confess, looking back, because there's no rhyme or reason in half this, uh, I just did what I was expected to do at the next stage, like my 11 plus, and then my O levels, then my A levels, like everybody did. And uh, I decided it would be easier to become a politician if I became a lawyer, because most politicians were lawyers, and all the ones I'd heard of seemed to have been lawyers. Uh, so I decided I might like to be a lawyer. Uh, once I made some money working in a brewery, I left at Easter from school, I then took a play place, unpaid place, in the solicitor's office to see whether I liked the law. Uh, and whether it would actually suit me. So I acted as a kind of office boy in a solicitor's office in Nottingham. 
and they used to send me to sit behind counsel in the courts uh, because they got paid a lot and I was being paid nothing and I could go through the motions of representing the solicitor in the litigation of sitting behind counsel, which was very interesting. And uh, I decided I quite like this solicitor's office, but I prefer to be a barrister. I rather like this appearing in court and the advocacy bit. So I determined I'd probably go to the bar, uh, particularly as one of the advocates who appeared a lot then was a guy called Jimmy James, who was the dominant figure in the chambers I later joined. So I infuriated a man called Neil McKendrick, who remains a friend of mine, who'd admitted me for my history to Gonville and Keyes College, Cambridge, by deciding over the summer that I was going to read law. It was a mistake, really, not a serious mistake. Uh, the law tripos in Cambridge then was so out of date it was completely useless for any purpose of practicing law and uh, was of no earthly use to me. I was mainly Roman law. I learned how to free slaves and things like that. <laughs> and and uh, I, 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 it was very easy, which gave me a lot of time for politics. Uh, I, 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 and, um, you shouldn't be telling uh, the students this. No, no, no. It's, it's all changed. All changed. <laughs> and and uh, well, the tripos changed at Cambridge not long after I went down. They did modernise it finally. Uh, but I wish now, looking back, I'd done a couple of years' history and then uh, perhaps done a, a year's law. Well, and in order to improve the law, I did a postgraduate year as well when I was at Cambridge. So I did that for some peculiar reason, Cambridge calls its law degree a BA and then its postgraduate degree an LLB, which it did in my day. So I did that. And, and uh, it, it was not much preparation for practice, except it got me exemptions from quite a lot of the bar finals, so I, you didn't have to go in for all this residential stuff at Guildford and things in my day. I borrowed a correspondence course for the bar finals from Michael Howard, who'd just done it, <laughs> and, and, and stayed on at Cambridge over the summer when everybody else went away, or for a bit of the summer, in order to mug it up and do the bar finals, get called in time for the autumn. That's how I got into it. Yeah. But it was purely utilitarian that I... I, I did all right at law, got a 2-1, got a but... Uh, it was going to be more interesting, more useful to do history because you know, I could have done the law anyway in better ways than by the then Cambridge tripods. I'm sure the Cambridge law degree now is absolutely fantastic, academically demanding, <laughs> utterly bang up to the minute and relevant to everybody, essential indeed to everybody who wishes to go into practice. But John Torbenson there, I think he read, no, he read law? Yeah, I think he read law as well. I, he probably doesn't agree with my strictures. It made you the man you are today, John. But I mean, it was in fact a completely useless tripod. But you too spent your entire time in politics, and now you're on the bench. But there we are. <laughs> Ken, can I, I mean, was there no subject that you got your teeth into in terms of legal... Oh, I mean, oh yes, but I enjoyed some of it. No, don't no, no, be too, too, too disparaging. Firstly, I liked my, the guy who's my director of studies, who was a, a teaching academic and did Michael get me Pritchard, into some of the law, Michael Pritchard. Yeah. Mm. Got me engaged in some of the law. It got me adequately engaged to be able to mug up in the last term to get a decent degree. I kept thinking I was going to get a first, which I only did in my first year. My excuse thereafter is I just could not involve, avoid getting involved in politics the whole damn time. Um, some of it was quite interesting, and some was relevant. I think we did criminal law for a term or something like that, which is where I wound up spending most of my time once I practiced. Um, private international law and public international law, I did both those for my postgraduate. Yeah, yeah. 
degree, which were extremely interesting. They were quite academic subjects. What, what, what about that? Uh, we, we did some industrial laws, which was quite interesting, trade union law. Uh, I used to go to his lectures. Uh, was it... Uh, now, Lauterpacht did international law. Yeah, what was the name of the very left-wing guy? Wedderburn. I was completely left-wing legal academic. A brilliant man, outstandingly able man with extremely left-wing views. Um, he used to lecture he was a professor on the law of employment. Yeah, sure. That is <laughs> but uh, far to the left of me. But he used to give us an extremely left-wing angle on employment law, which I found interesting uh, and associated subjects. But it was, it, it was somewhat offbeat tripods, I'm not being rude about the people, but it was, it simply had been put together oddly and should have been modernized long before 1963. When you you mentioned Michael uh, Pritchard, what about some of the other teachers there, I mean? Well, that about, I used to go to the lectures of the people I liked, uh, thought some good, um, uh, and then I used to know some of the other lawyers. Lauterbach, I just mentioned Lauterbach, mm. he was a very interesting... Len, Len Seeley was at Keyes. I know, Len Seeley arrived halfway through my time yeah, there. Yeah. Len was, I, I, I like Len. So mm. Len uh, sort of uh, t- taught me a bit. Uh, we had, uh, how was name? We had various international lawyers at the College of McNair, was his name. Um, I remember the names getting worse and worse. Yeah, well, as a private international lawyer, you would have had Lipstein, did you? Could yes, I think we did, yeah. That was interesting. But I mean, I mm. uh, again, as it happened, had I gone into specialised chambers of some kind, uh, that would have been valuable to me. What I do think about legal education, just being a little less flippant, escaping from a demo in the LSE. The, the old days, you couldn't escape from a demo in the LSE, but times have changed. <laughs> uh, the, 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 um, the, the academic, the, the legal training. The, the actual approach to study, regardless of the content, regardless of the Roman law, the international law, and so on, I think does induce a certain analytical approach to things, a, a certain systematic approach to problems, uh, to advocacy, to putting things forward. And one way or another, I hope I acquired a lot of that and acquired a decent respect for the rule of law and the kind of order it represents. So it, don't be too flip. No. But it was. I think modern Cambridge academics would agree that, looking back, it was pretty absurd that the tripods had survived and the state had survived into the early 1960s. As you, as you say, you did a lot of politics, the uh, conservative, uh, okay. conservative uh, club, the... Yes, I joined uh, all the political clubs and then became more and more active in the Conservative Association. Uh, for a time outside the university, I was active in both the Bow Group and the Campaign for Democratic Socialism at the same time. <laughs> but but, but by, by, by the time I left, I was very much a conservative. I'd been chairman of the Conservative Association, mm. and those. then I was nationally involved. The, the Feder- Federation, yes. In the Federation yes. of Conservatives. And of course, in your fourth year, you became president of the union. I was the president of the union, yes. so, yeah. Yeah. Gave you, Vince Cable his first paper speech of the union. You, you, as you said, you did the exams, you then go to Birmingham, to the bar. Now, why Birmingham? Why not? Because I couldn't afford to come to London. I was broke. I, I had everybody's, having spent a day debating and avoiding demonstrators going about student loans, I had a very generous grant uh, and a huge overdraft. I mean, I didn't have to be given a loan, I acquired my own. Uh, <laughs> by, 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 by the time I left, the principal problem was I had to pay this overdraft. Now, if you went to London in those days, my, my 
looking back, strangely ill-formed understanding, but I think probably accurately, was you couldn't earn any money in pupillage much. It would be quite a time if we got solvent. And I had to persuade this bank manager that I would be able to handle this overdraft. And I, it seemed to me to be easier to earn a living on circuit at the provincial bar. Now, because of my visions of the courts when I'd been doing this solicitor's office boy job, it seemed to me that all the people who did the best cases in Nottingham weren't at those days from the Nottingham bar. They were from Birmingham or, or London, but Birmingham mainly. And so I expressed an interest in going to Birmingham because I thought I might be able to earn a living quicker there and pay off my overdraft. And I, there was an arrangement at the university where you could seek help in being put in touch with chambers. And I was put in touch with what turned out to be the best chambers uh, in Birmingham and went over to meet the head of chambers, a man called Michael Davis, uh, who kind of took me on. It was, again, just a slightly ludicrous world compared with the problems that face people going to the bar now. I, I wandered over with a vague introduction to this chap, Michael Davis, of whom I had dimly heard. I, he was the head of chambers. I walked in, had ten minutes chat with, with, with him. He told me, well, I could be his pupil, and uh, went out and introduced me to a few other members of chambers who were hanging around in this strange Victorian building we were in, in Temple Row, Birmingham. And I started, and uh, I was very lucky, because they were desperately short of people. The bar went in glut and famine, and there'd been a whole several years when nobody, without hadn't got money to keep going for years, could possibly make a living at the bar. And then suddenly there was a surge of work. I can't remember quite what it caused it, probably some legal aid surge or something. And by the time we got there, this chambers was really rather desperately short of people and had rather a lot of work. And so the result was, I'm glad to say, I was able to pay the rent because, uh, and more, because there was a vast amount of work and it was quite difficult to do a proper pupillage. I spent some time going around my pupil master, but the clerk kept bunging me into cases. I did my first appearance between the Court of Criminal Appeal in pupillage. Uh, and uh, which again, you quite rightly, you couldn't conceivably do now. And as I've revealed that my academic training was all right, but didn't bear much relation to the life of the Midland Circuit, um, I was learning the job as I went along. It was sort of learning from Nelly, really. You learned more from your opponents and your mistakes than you, and the other members of chambers, because it was a very tightly knit chambers. And that's how I go along. And I was obliged to spend some days following around my, my pupil master and acting as his pupil. And some, quite a lot of the time, we lost touch with each other. He had another pupil when I arrived, a man called Tony Palmer. We kind of overlapped. And I, the, I met Tony when we were over at Warwick Court, but Tony was in a jury trial. Uh, and so I met this guy who was busily defending quite a long jury trial at Warwick, and he was the other pupil. Um, so the result was I was get, able to get married after a year. I was, only, I was pretty well solvent. Uh, and the uh, bank manager was calmed down, and I was earning some money. And so going to Birmingham was justified, and I think if I'd gone to London, I'd have starved for a couple of years. Probably never got anywhere because I couldn't and, have uh, lasted very long. And like all barristers in those days, you did everything crimes. You did whatever came in, yes. Yeah. Crime. It, it was a circuit, uh, circuit life. It was crime, civil, 
And then, as you say, the odd things, a bit, uh, and divorce, a bit of divorce, but most people have got their hands on the divorce, took you some time to get hold of the divorce. You got, you got quite a lot of work from trade unions, is that right? My, my, I became a plaintiff's man in mainly industrial accident work. It, one of the, cha the Chambers clients was a firm of solicitors called Greenwoods. They were the solicitors for the Municipal and General Workers Union, and I became one of the members of Chambers who they employed in their civil industrial accident claims. So I found myself representing plaintiffs uh, all over the place in uh, industrial action uh, uh, accidents uh, claims really before the health and safety culture had got underway. So uh, but the, the car firms weren't too bad, but there was... The black country in Birmingham was the metal-bashing centre of the country, and health and safety standards were not too high. Um, and so people were always blowing up sort of foundries and billets were flying around in the air and all kinds of things. I became a bit of... My speciality, one of my specialities, a few cases I did, because there weren't many came along, were some drop hammers, real old-fashioned drop hammers, and if you got it twisted the wrong way, either the twangs went round and threw you in the air, or more often you did a kind of flip and shot across the, uh, the, 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 the shed, uh, hitting somebody on his, working on his press on the other side of the shed. So I had a few of those. And, and uh, otherwise it was bits of unfenced machinery and all this sort of thing against the Iron Trades Insurance Company, who was represented usually by a different team of lawyers. But I did a lot of crime. First, a bit of magistrate's court, but it was because they were so short of barristers, increasingly trials in other courts. Yes. You start in 64. You uh, try in Mansfield in 64 and 66. Um, you then finally elected to the, yeah. to the seat that you have held since 1970. Rushcliffe, you're, I mean, you're politically active. How, how do you manage this? Uh, because you have to nurse well, the seat because you're selected in 66, yeah, I think. Yeah, it, was, it was different today. Uh, I mean, I did, my, my first candidature, I was in pupillage. And I was on the candidates list when I left Cambridge. And we were approaching an election, so I didn't think I'd get a candidature. But the candidate from Mansfield, which is a mining town in North Nottingham, which I knew vaguely, uh, had a nervous breakdown, poor chap. Uh, so suddenly they were that candidate. So I put in for this, slightly speculatively, and uh, became the candidate. And I had to break it to my chambers. I thought my pupil master seemed rather tickled by this. The clerk was all right once I had assured him that it was a 20,000-plus Labour majority and there wasn't the faintest <laughs> chance of my winning it. And I actually got the nomination by telling the six old ladies who seemed to be the selection committee uh, that uh, why did I want to fight Mansfield, they said, which was, as a conservative, which was a very intelligent question. And, and I said, well, I couldn't afford possibly to be an MP. I was a pupil at the bar, but I quite liked the experience of being the candidate. So I fought it, enjoyed it, fought it twice. Hmm. Then began to, folly began to set in, and I began to think of trying to find somewhere I could win. Mm. And wound up at Rushcliffe, mm. which was a Labour seat, but held with a tiny majority mm. in 1970. Yeah. And very soon... But I mean, the combination mm. just involved a lot of driving. 
few late nights. Mm. But I did, you didn't have to nurse a seat then as you do now. Mm. I mean, we, nowadays people do some associations do mad things. They say the candidate should give up work and should live in the constituency. I didn't live in the constituency, although I knew it well. You know, until I've been the member for about 16, 17 years. I thought they deserved to have me in their midst now. But I just knew it. I did know it well, so I wasn't a carpetbagger. I came from over the river originally. But uh, you, you could drive across, you could combine it, and I combined me. And then those days, and I must be one of the last who really did it, I, I combined being on circuit with being a member of parliament when I got elected. You couldn't possibly live on an MP's income. Uh, and so if nobody voluntarily did, and you were expected to have an outside income. So I carried on practicing after mm. 1970. So what you, 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 you're in Birmingham in the morning, you go to court, yes. you then get on the train to vote. Yeah, the, the, courts, uh, the, the, the courts were a little less pressured those days. They would sit typically half ten, I think. Uh, usually go on until about four. Um, and off to New Street Station, uh, down to London. I go to the House of Commons, House of Commons till the evening, used to go on till 10 at least usually, after 10 a bit, and the midnight train on London was my, usually where I wound up. I did have a place I could stay in London, I had a, had a, a, a but, uh, if I was busy, if I was actually in work, I, I would travel north on the midnight train, either to go back to a trial I was in or to read the brief when I got back home and go into court in the morning, and then it was, Pretty strenuous. I, I, I remember telling myself this was a young man's game, and if I didn't become a minister, uh, you know, soon I would pack it in and perhaps give priority at the bar. But in those days, you could so control, <coughs> control your time as a member of parliament and control your, with the help of a helpful clerk. I had a very helpful and supportive clerk. With the help of your clerk, control quite a bit the listing of your cases. In, in, in the courts, you could combine it as long as you prepared to moonlight and lead pretty crazy hours and sleep on trains, um, which I was young enough not to bother with. So I actually was able to combine it with being a front bench spokesman. I took a sabbatical to go into the Heath government in the Whip's office, but that only took me away for a couple of years. Then we lost, and I resumed my practice. And then I, I was a front bench spokesman then, but I was still able. If I had a committee that I had to do as a shadow spokesman, I would tell the clerk I couldn't be in court on Tuesdays or whatever it was, mm -hmm. or Thursdays, whatever it was, for a bit, and try to get him to move the significant cases mm -hmm. so I could do it. But I guess it, it, uh, it, you've got me reminiscing. I've arrived in a reminiscing mood. As much as you <laughs> and it, it, the more I go on, it is a completely alien world because I don't think anybody could do that no. now. I think both at the bar and in politics and parliament, it would be quite impossible. Do it that way. There are a lot of lawyers who just come in. There's a sudden influx of lawyers. You and I were rather scarce animals by the time you and I were in Parliament together. There are more lawyers come in. Whether any of them are trying to com continue their practice on circuit, I don't know. Well, the parliamentary hours are different as well, aren't they? Parliamentary hours have altered a bit. They, they sit during the day. Yes. Um, you, you eventually take silk. Just a question about that. Was that under the Labour government? Did, was no, no, that was Quinton. No, that was, that was, it was, uh, ah. that was in 81. I was, mm. When I took silk, I was a minister. I always say it wasn't political silk, because I'm going to members of Parliament mm. apply for silk and can get it. Uh, I claim, uh, the reason I took silk, actually, was when, when I took office in 79, 
I assumed I'd be a minister for three or four years, which was about the political life expectancy of a minister, and, and then I were back in practice. So I put mothballs in my robes and uh, can be a minister. And, and it, I, I worked out that I'd try to get back into practice as a silk because it was pretty well my turn to take silk in chambers if you were going to get it. There was a guy ahead of me, the game, same guy, uh, Tony Palmer, was obviously ahead of me in every way. It was going to take silk ahead of me. But after that, it was really me, if I was ever going to get it, was the obvious person likely to take silk next. Mm. So as I was taking three or four years out of my legal practice, I thought I'd apply for silk, and if I could get it, then when I left the government, go back into practice. So I applied, and Quinton gave mm. me silk. Mm. As you say, you then became a minister for 18 years. Well, it was too late to go back uh, to practice, so I might finished. Yeah, that's right, they'd changed it all. So I, I couldn't go back and do that. So. But can I just ask you one question, because Initially, under Mrs. Thatcher, progress was, was slower than you'd expected. A bit. And I understand you were offered by Michael Havers the position as Solicitor General, and you declined. Yeah, well, again, you and I should have a conversation, you chose a different part. I was quite determined not to become a political lawyer. The, the, I, there were an awful lot of political lawyers in my day and before it, and they were a standard type of political lawyer. Went in, you had legal practice, became a law officer, and, and so on, and perhaps a Home Office minister. And I actually was quite interested in the generality of politics, and I kept law and politics apart. My legal practice was in the West Midlands. My political activities were in the East Midlands. Birmingham for the law, Nottingham for politics. It fitted with the then professional rules. You couldn't advertise. So in Nottingham, I was trying to get a lot of publicity as a Conservative candidate. In Birmingham, people were only dimly aware that I was anything to do with politics. And I kept the two apart in that way. And I decided if I just wished to do a wholly legal career, there was no point in going to politics. I mean, what was the right reason to stick to the bar? Uh, so I went into politics precisely because my interests were much wider in law. So when I was a backbencher, which wasn't very long, but when I, when I went there, I said, didn't, didn't advertise the fact that I lawyer much. I, I made a point of not speaking on legal issues. I took no part in Home Office debates, carried on about lots of other subjects, and then I went to the Whip's office and was silenced. Uh, and then I shadowed other things. By the time Michael asked me to come and join him as his Solicitor General. I was Minister of State for Health, I think. Yeah, that would be right. Mm. Uh, Mid-80s, because it was after I'd left transport. transport yes, now, Minister yeah. of Health, I was enjoying this. It was all hell let loose, like health politics is in every Western democracy. Uh, it was the first stirrings of reform. It was a permanently crisis-ridden service. We got a guy called Roy Griffiths in from Sainsbury's, I think, to advise us on modern management, to work alongside the politicians. And we were trying to get the embryonic beginnings of a sensible management system and some financial control so you could actually make some choices about this strange self-perpetuating bureaucracy, which was crashing on from financial crisis to financial crisis every winter but which actually seemed to be urgently in need of reform. Now, I say it was already politically all hell let loose. 
uh, I was beginning to become notorious for the first time because the, you know, the, we were being denounced right, left and centre by every vested interest in this highly politicised and unionised service. Uh, and I was enjoying all this really because I actually thought we might be able to do some good if we could get some basic management information and organisation to this extraordinary system. Uh, and I was very keen on the National Health Service. So Michael was wanting me to go back, be Solicitor General, just be a lawyer really, political lawyer, but go back onto this political track. And I was already getting into the party conflict, the controversy, the reform. Uh, and I, I, he was very slightly disappointed, annoyed with me, couldn't understand why I didn't jump at the chance of getting his sponsorship to become Solicitor General. Why would a lawyer want to carry on faffing about being Minister of State in the Health Department? Um, but I'm afraid I successfully fend off and avoided being sucked in, probably because Margaret still wasn't quite sure of me, so she, uh, she might, might, might have tempted to bung me out of, out of the harm's way as Solicitor General, but... Uh, she kept me at, at health, but she didn't, I wasn't pressed by anybody but Michael, and I mm. turned it down. Mm. And then, of course, she became Secretary of State for Health. And Later, with an interval, I became Secretary of State for Health. Then I was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Then I, I went to DTI first. There are, there are two questions oh. I've it's been suggested I ask you. The first is, what's happened to your collection of photographs of Portuguese locomotives? <laughs> the second question is prompted by my wife. Why the interest in birds? Well, this is, uh, yeah, it's very often I can I'm going to Well, firstly, when I was a schoolboy, I was mad keen on trains. Uh, I, when I wasn't doing the academic, I mean, I, I, was, I was really, I was there to be a professional exam passer. I wasn't otherwise very organised, uh, but I could pass all the exams. So uh, I, I carried on going up the, up the school. Uh, and my main way by people would remember me, people remember me at school, people, those who do remember me, remember me as being an active member of the Locomotive Society, which I wound up running. So when I was 12, I was a scruffy little train spotter. Uh, like most of my friends, I wasn't the only one. And by the time I was about 15 or 16, I was a mad keen train spotter. Uh, and uh, then it's kind of faded as I grew up. Uh, 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 and to cover girls and things, uh, uh, and uh, ceased to be a train spotter, but I, I remain quite keen on steam engines. I still follow them if I hear the whistle, and as you say, I took massive amount of photographs. How you, you have looked up one of these books about me, obviously. Um, and somewhere buried in an attic, I think I have hundreds of photographs of railway engines at home and abroad, including the narrow gauge. Uh, network north of Lisbon, but that I took those long arts used to be a train spotter when I took my family on a holiday to the Portuguese coast when I hadn't been going to the bar all that long. I got small children who we went to the Portuguese coast when it was a very backward, poverty-stricken, delightful country, and there were these little steam trains on a meter gauge railway line running between where we stayed and Porto, uh, no Lisbon, and uh, we uh, we used to travel on. When I photograph them, I've got. I've got old amateur film of them somewhere. Give me, give me half a day and I could probably find them. I'd see what condition they're in. Uh, bird watching, don't know. I, I despised bird watching when I was young and I could have taken it up. It was a slightly balmy activity. Uh, and uh, I got into it when it was my 30s, largely on holiday, being fascinated by rather odd birds, buying a book. knew nothing about it. I get obsessive about my interests. I take up interests which take my mind off politics. So I've got more and more obsessive about bird watching and eventually got into it and got better at it and started travelling. It's a great excuse for going to wild, beautiful places.
probably just grown up train spotting, but any bird watcher would uh, deny that. And, and uh, I, I am pretty keen. When I get don't get enough time, when I get the chance, I still go to wild and beautiful places bird watching. Good. Well, thanks very much. I think you've agreed to take a few questions from sure. the audience. I hadn't realised you were going to be quite so autobiographical. I assume this was quasi-academic and legal. You're just going to be nattering away about my views. Uh, we've got a couple of questions. I'll, I'll call three in a row. So there's one here, uh, there's one in the middle here, and there's one over there. So in that order. And we'll take three and then um, Ken can answer them. Uh, sorry, with the blue shirt. Yeah, the blue shirt. <coughs> Thank you. Um, this is a question about, uh, I think, about public international law. The environment that supports human life is being destroyed, even as we speak, by the activities of global corporations. My question is, um, does Mr. Clark believe that it would be a practical or viable solution to this problem to create a fifth crime to join the other four in the United Nations Charter, the crime of ecocide, which has been written about by Polly Higgins? Um, does he believe this would be a viable solution, and would he personally support it, and would he foresee any um, pitfalls? Right, thanks very much. Uh, I, think, I, think carbon, I think climate change is, is you know, a serious global problem. I think, therefore, we have obviously got to take action to reduce carbon emissions pretty seriously and briskly, and we must take every reasonable, sensible method of doing that. The aim, obviously, being to combine the reduction of carbon emissions with a successful global economy, with economic growth, and with... The, growth of trade and so on, which is whatever is going to Cancun to try to take the next steps on now, but meanwhile we as a government must do more of that. But I, an interesting theory you have, but I'm, no, I'm not attracted by the idea of making a new international crime of ecocide. It would give rise to some interesting litigation, I think, but uh, I prefer to start with rather a narrower target of firstly what kind of carbon trading you're going in for, what kind of penalties you're opposing, imposing on excessive emissions, and for serious polluting and damaging activities, well, you can have a perfectly decent set of environmental and regulatory legislation at national, sometimes international level, to control that. But ecocide, no, I'm not, not persuaded of that. Uh, there was someone in there. Okay, it's a question on House of Lords reform. Um, does Mr. Clark think that a wholly or partly elected House of Lords would reduce the ability of Parliament as a whole to scrutinise legislation effectively? I, 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 I lose all, all my old friends, who uh, quite a lot of them in the House of Lords, go completely spare when I repeat my belief that one day it will be made a largely, if not wholly, elected House. I, I, I just think uh, in a modern legislature, in a democracy, you, you only have true legitimacy if your legislators are elected. That is the foundation of democracy. 
uh, whether they're appointed politically, whether they are appointed by a committee of the greater and the good, whether they bought them, or however else they've acquired them, le legislators who got there by a route other than being elected are that much weaker. I therefore think you would actually have a stronger upper house, and you could have a stronger upper house if you gave it the legitimacy of election. And I joined up with the late Robin Cook and others to put forward a proposal whereby you would elect the upper house, do so on a different basis to the commons, precisely to make it different to the commons, try to get people who would stick to the scrutinizing and checking, which the House of Lords does very well at the moment, certainly does better than the commons at the moment, say 12-year terms, a third retiring every four years, arguably no right to get re-elected after the 12 years, uh, so you produce quite different sort of member and a quite different sort of tenure amongst your senators to the people in the lower house. You'd have to, with the avoidance of deadlock, keep the lower house, the House of Commons, as the prime house of the legislature, reserving to your lower house control over taxation, most control over public expenditure, and making a vote of confidence in the lower house. Uh, the essential basis for the government's legitimacy and authority. That's a very, very shorthand scamper to what is a very complicated and controversial subject. But that's, that's where I still am. And I think if a man from Mars with democratic instincts came to the country at the moment, he, he might admire the House of Lords in many ways, but he'd think it a very peculiar institution. Uh, to be the upper house of our legislature, and he'd think the British looked as though they were getting quite ready for democracy, and might be allowed to govern themselves by a more democratic method. <laughs> There's a lady over there. Um, yes, hi, I wanted to ask about libel reform, um, what you think about it, because the coalition has um, committed to it, and um, also about the um, Lord Justice Jackson's proposals, which the government has accepted, um, to change the cost structure of litigation, and is it really true that English law will get rid of loser pays? <laughs> and um, just one more thing, and what did you think related to that about the Speech Act that was passed in the U.S.? The, with the what, sorry? The Speech Act that was passed um, by the U.S. Congress, um, having to do with libel tourism? Well, yeah, the, the, well, defamation, I should be reserved. It's the first, <laughs> first contemporary uh, question you've asked me, and so I should, be, I should return to being ministerial a bit. Uh, I think the defamation law needs revising, and we committed ourselves to do so. What we're going to do is produce a draft bill in this first rather crowded session and consult on that. I mean, we're merely moving on from, really moving on in some ways, from Anthony Lester's bill. I don't think Anthony Lester's bill... Uh, not uh, right in every particular, but he had a go at putting a backbench Lords bill forward recently, uh, but some of the things that I agree with and we agree with. So we'll soon be producing, uh, sometime in the new year, I think, a draft bill upon which we will consult. Uh, and then, in the light of that consultation, we will see if we can get a legislative slot, produce a new defamation act in the next parliament. Now, I don't want to trail what would be in the draft bill, we've got to put that before Parliament first, but obviously we're looking at a whole variety of things like, uh, well, rather strange cases that have involved scientists and religious figures and so on, and whether we've got that right in terms of freedom of speech, libel tourism we will be looking at, uh, and uh, 
Also, whether we can modernise and sort out some of the... I think there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the law, I don't think, but the, some of the concepts do require some modernising, and I think practitioners on all sides would quite welcome some sensible definitions. Uh, Lord Jackson's uh, report on costs in civil cases goes wider than defamation, and he's had a look at how the no-win, no-fee uh, system has been working, and we've accepted his recommendations, and at the moment I'm consulting on them alongside our proposals on legal aid reform. And we're moving, in shorthand, uh, away from rather the, the success fee basis, which makes it so very, very expensive to fight and lose against a no-win, no-fee opponent at the moment, which drives up the general costs of civil litigation more to the American system, where, amongst other things, one of the systems you'll be able to adopt is have no win, no fee, but the successful litigant will, uh, well, all the, we can expect to meet some of the damages, some of the costs that his lawyer wants out of the damages that have been recovered. But again, I'm giving shorthand. If anybody wants to know seriously what we're suggesting, you know, there are more considered explanations, but there'll be a proper, there's a more considered explanation of Jackson's report already and there'll be more considered things on defamation. But as I say, Jackson uh, goes much wider than defamation. It'll have an effect on defamation, make it, um, make it more accessible and stop defendants having to cave in against plaintiffs with no assets at all. We're going to cost them a fortune. Um, stop defendants generally in other civil actions feeling you've got to settle even frivolous claims because it's going to cost you so much to get rid of them. Uh, and... Um, you can get the cost down generally, stop the gagging writs which wealthy plaintiffs are entitled, sometimes entitled to use against defendants. Again, there are cost measures you can take whereby you can stop a poor def defendant being crushed by a gagging writ from someone claiming that you've defamed him, which the late now, Robert Maxwell uh, was very fond of doing. Now, I've got quite a lot of questions. I'm going to... Uh, call this person by name, Lord Justice Hooper, so you know who's going to ask you the question. Have we got a microphone? You are the first minister in charge of the criminal justice system for... You are the first minister uh, in charge of the criminal justice system who for many years has decided not to feed the voracious and insatiable appetite of the Sun newspaper. How does it feel? <laughs> As the son, I've probably got a reporter here. I shall decline to get drawn into uh, uh, any idea that it's, uh, it's really the way of uh, looking at anything other than my extremely wise and far-seeing proposals for, for sentencing reform. Now, I, I, we're, we're consulting on it. I mean, everybody's entitled to their views. Some sections of the press agree with me more than others. So I don't think that's very decisive in these things. Uh, and I... I uh, no, I, I, I just think, of course, I'm a politician, so there's going to be a wild political debate, but running through it all, I think it's, it's plain that we've got to bring back some, some common sense, some sense of justice, some sense of proportion, some sense of uh, what is affordable into the criminal justice system. Uh, and the, the main thing I'm concentrating on, there's a lot of things, all of which are causing controversy, is uh, doing something more effective about reoffending, if we possibly can, and then looking also at the, what other alternatives to prison there are, but only for the fringe of people. Um, in the first place, we want eventually to reduce the prison population by reducing the number of crimes being committed by people reoffending. 
I, I personally don't mind the sort of, I'm rather used to the level of debate. I mean, every department I've been in has been controversial. Most of my enemies have not been <coughs> understated in their attacks uh, on the various reforms I've tried in ed health and education, my uh, economic policy, and uh, other things that I've done. So this is, this is part of the course, and um, most reactions are fairly predictable. I, I was astonished by how uncontroversial it was in the House of Commons. I mean, there were critics, but I, I expected once I produced these proposals, it would be all hell let loose. Well, it's not all hell let loose. Uh, uh, and the House of Commons had an extremely calm, pretty widespread synthetic reaction. I mean, th there were some people who were opposed, but there weren't very many, actually. The people outside who are opposed are dramatizing the number of critics I had in the House of Commons and dramatizing the strength of the views in the peaceful of the House of Commons as well. From behind me, there were far more supporters than there were opponents. And without being too partisan, Ross, I don't think the Labour Party could think of anything actually to oppose. So, so, so it was, um, so it started quite well. And I shall, of course, take the views of the Sun newspaper carefully into account. <laughs> now I've got, uh, someone over there had his hand up. Then there's a, uh, this, yes, here and then right up the back in the middle. And then I think we'll probably have to call it a day. No, I think it was the chap with the beer. Oh, well, I'm not sure. Can you <laughs> decide between yourselves? I thought it was the chap with the, <laughs> with the microphone. They both the Possession is nine points of the law. Uh, yes, you're, you're holding the microphone. Um, I just wanted to ask you a bit further about your views on prison reform. Um, how did you arrive at your views about rehabilitation over which you've disagreed with Michael Howard in the past? Um, was that something that you arrived at through your time as a criminal lawyer or was it something that something a bit more inherent that you've always believed? Shall we take the yeah. all, all right. What well, if somebody well, asks a totally different question? I, mean, I don't disagree with Michael Howard about rehabilitation. That, the press keep getting hold of Michael and trying to get us to disagree. Well, they will. You know, that's what the journalists are for. Uh, 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 Michael, as far as I'm aware, uh, does not, a, a, and he's not a friend of mine, he was at Cambridge with me. Uh, he was much more left-wing than me when he was at Cambridge. They, 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 um, uh, Michael does not disagree with me on reoffending and rehabilitation. I don't think, uh, to the disappointment of those who try to get a comment from him, I don't think he disagrees at all with uh, part of it. Where Michael and I have a disagreement, it's a slightly hidden historic agreement, it is what exactly the effect was of the huge growth in the prison population which started in his time. Uh, and, and he you know, obviously thinks it was very causative in, in, in reducing the level of crime, and I, I beg to differ. I don't think either of us is ever going to prove it uh, one way or the other. Um, I inherited a situation where the previous government was just assuming that uh, the prison population was going to soar by another 10,000 or so into the 90,000 plus and was desperately trying to build prisons fast enough to keep up with it, something which they had singularly failed to do because they were having to let people out early as they were acquiring the prisoners faster than they were the prisons. That's, that's pretty well what I inherited. Uh, and uh, and uh, so the prison numbers thing, we, we're now going to stabilise. Where did I get my views on rehabilitation? Well, I think um, 
I mean, I'm not totally new to the political side of it. I was Home Secretary for 15 months. That's when I had prisons. It was the big old Home Office, the one that Michael was in, which was a big office in all kinds of things, uh, including prisons and, and um, including you know, the criminal law. Uh, and, I, and I just think uh, prisons for a few things. It's for punishment, reparation. That's obviously what it's for. It is true that whilst people are in prison, you obviously get a break from the crimes they might otherwise be committing if they were outside. And the third aim must be to reduce the propensity of people to re-offend, commit more crimes, and come back again. And I just think it's, you look at the system and it's expanding like mad, and where is it weakest? It's weakest on the third. And also when you look at this hugely expanded prison population, I thought I'd got overcrowded prisons and a lot of prisoners uh, when I was Home Secretary, and it's practically doubled. Uh, and you look at this, this, uh, this, this hugely expanded population we've got now, and you know, why are three quarters of them going to reoffend again? Why are half of them reoffending within a year of you releasing them? And of course, you discover a staggering level of drug problems and alcohol abuse and mental illness, illiteracy, innumeracy, uh, lack of any employment history, and lack of any great prospects of getting employment in future. And it just seems to me as we keep spending more and more money, that to, just to neglect this and developers actually keep slightly enlarging the underclass of people, uh, going in and out of the prisons on the <coughs> revolving door principle is not the way of proceeding. There are a lot of people doing very good work in all the areas I have indicated, but that is where I'd like to put the priority now, where the government would like to put the priority, and that's basically how I, I arrived at it. It's uh, the value for money of just making the prison population bigger and bigger and bigger is highly debatable. As they're most surprising people are now saying in the States, I know I've met Newt Gingrich a few times, which is the first time I've ever quoted Newt Gingrich with approval in the House of Commons. Which I <laughs> he makes the same case in America. Right up the back in the middle there. Yes, I was just wondering whether Mr. Clark would have fancied the post of Lord Chancellor as it was understood in the, in the last century um, before the compromise which we have now which was presumably a result of Tony Blair being tapped on the shoulder and told he probably couldn't abolish the oldest position in British government in a Friday afternoon press conference. Yes, uh, well I wouldn't have been Lord Fashion Lord Chancellor and I should say although the and I'm quite glad the title has been maintained. I don't regard myself as a Lord Chancellor of the historic pattern that I'm used to. Um, as I don't sit on the Warsack, I'm not a member of the House of Lords. Most importantly of all, I'm not a judge of any kind. I take no part, I exercise no judicial functions. I, if I turned up in the Supreme Court and tried to exercise my right to sit there, which I don't think I've got, uh, I would quite rightly expect to be turned away on the, the absurdity of my, my going there with the you know, limited progress I'd made in my legal career. Um, it was bound to be abolished one day. I think the way it was abolished was pretty damn silly and unnecessary. But constitutionally, of course, in principle, the old Lord Chancellor's post was indefensible. The, the same person was uh, a political appointment to the cabinet, he was the senior judge in the land. He appointed all the other judges, 
and he sat in the upper house of the legislature over which he at least theoretically provided. Uh, this is such a bizarre position that if any third world potentate set up such a position, you would think that he had gone to an excess of authoritarianism um, of new levels. And it worked. I would have left it alone simply because of the boring old Tory reason that nobody was actually abusing it. And that was because of the quality of the people who were appointed and the tradition of not abusing it. They were senior, heavyweight, responsible lawyers, acutely aware of their dignity and acutely resistant to any idea that we're going to start handling the judicial parts of their appointment in any political fashion. One other, I mean, James Mackay was a marvellous guy. Whether he was conservative, I'm still trying to discover, but he takes our, our whip uh, now. But a saintly man, a very good lawyer, uh, and he played a marvellous role in Cabinet, but, uh, and so on. And uh, Quinton, in his way, was quite a remarkable figure, though he was more political. Uh, but he was also decent Lord Chancellor, and so on, and it worked. And uh, why Tony got it in his head to change it, I never quite discovered. I, my my unkind and unfair and completely uninformed suspicion is he decided he wanted to remove Derry Irving. Uh, he is a fan of Derry Irvins. I mean, he's well, quite rightly, I'm a fan of Derry Irvins, and he owes a lot to Derry Irving. And he speaks very kindly and fondly in his memoirs of Derry Irving, Derry Irving's contribution to the government, which was, in the first six months, when none of them had got any idea what they were doing, there only Derry Irving and Gordon Brown could do anything. So he had made a great contribution uh, to the government. Uh, but obviously Tony, for some reason, decided to get rid of him. Well, there were simpler ways of persuading Derry to step down without offending him. He did offend Derry enormously by the way he did it, but I'm sure the intention was to go for a constitutional reform. So this man who I think Tony genuinely admires would be not hurt by being suggested he might step down. And as you say, they made a complete horlicks of it and uh, didn't take any advice from anybody. And they drew up a press release reorganizing half of Whitehall and abolishing the post. And I had to be told that 30 statutes would have to be amended to do all this, uh, and it wasn't possible to proceed like this. They then carved up the old responsibilities in a pretty silly way, uh, so that the Home Office is bits of the old Home Office, and my department's bits of the old Home Office, and bits of the Lord Chancellor's department, and one day someone will try and have a rational decision. Uh, and they quite rightly called my post Secretary of State for Justice. And then there was a tremendous fuss about the abolition of Lord Chancellor, you know, of all our Gilbert and Sullivan titles, most of which I've held in my much reshuffled career. Uh, this is the most revered and ancient. It goes back before the conquest and all this kind of thing. And everybody loves Lord, you know, everybody's seen Gilbert and Sullivan, Ireland, and things like that. All wanted the Lord Chancellor. Uh, and so they recreated the Lord Chancellor. But Jack Straw and I are the first of the modern sort of Lord Chancellor. Uh, we're not in the House of Lords. We do not sit in the judiciary. We are heads of a medium-sized Whitehall department, such as the court service, legal aid, prisons, and the criminal justice and, and, and criminal law and civil law system. Uh, and uh, we, 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 we sit in the commons. But I, I don't mind being Lord Chancellor. I, I like the traditions. I would prefer it if somebody else dressed up in the costume for my entertainment rather than the way around uh, <laughs> Uh, that I do it now, but I, I, I still turn out, and uh, I can still remember how to put it on. Uh, uh, and um, 
wander around in the robes and have all kinds of weird ceremonial, everything rather weird and obscure, not just the public things that the Lord Chancellor used to do, seem to have followed me as Lord Chancellor to where I am. So I, swearing in bishops and all kinds of things. Uh, 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 and they, they break up the working day. And uh, no doubt another... <laughs> No, no, no doubt another, you know, strange British tradition will linger for another few hundred years before somebody has another go at it. But, um, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm going to have to draw it to a close. Um, I apologise to those who wanted to ask questions. Ken, thanks very much indeed. You've done a great job. Um, I hope that uh, people will have an interest in legal biography as a result of this. But, it wasn't uh, a very legal biography you took me into. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, I ask you all to, to uh, thank our guest tonight. Thank you.